Hear ye, hear ye, word nerds. Be forewarned. This podcast contains saucy language of the modern and early modern variety. So plan your listening accordingly. Or don't. That's a choice you can make. Don't say we didn't warn you. So this was the first thing that I ever read for grad school. Ever, right? Because this was for Raza's class. Um, was it really? Yeah. How did yeah. I miss it? I was in that class. Well, yeah, because because... The the first thing remember like we we all had to read a play. Oh, that's right. Before she, things started, she staggered it right, and everybody yeah. got a different and assignment. Right? You read Cambyses? Yeah, mark? something like that. Okay, yeah. that makes more and sense. And I read yeah this. Um, <laughs> and I like lost my shit right because I was like, uh, grad school hasn't even started yet, and I already have homework. Like, what the fuck? And then I opened it up. Right. And the first page of the the quarto scan is the quarto. It's not it's not like a it's not a clean copy. It's hard to read and it's alliterative and it's 14ers. And I was like, what the fuck? What the fuck? What the fuck? What the fuck have I gotten myself into? to the Hurley Burley Shakespeare Show. We are your hosts, Jess Hamlet and Aubrey Whitlock. And together we are Whamlet. And this week we are talking about, I don't know, like my favorite play ever, Climbing and Calamities. Each week what we do here, you know, you've been around, uh, we talk about a different play. Sometimes it's Shakespeare, sometimes it's not, but we always talk about it thoroughly. Oh yeah. And we're very <laughs> thorough this week. Uh, this is a 101 level episode. So that's Everything, literally everything you could possibly need to know to have a general understanding of this play and its major themes and some other cool stuff you're going to get nowhere else, like Jess's opinions about this play mm. and a few of mine, but mostly Jess's. So, like, mm. buckle up. <laughs> well, I just love this play. So this week I have been I've, I've gotten back into my habit of taking my long early morning walks. Oh, nice. Um, which... Also means that I have had a lot of opportunity to catch up on this podcast that we make, Yay. you and I together, uh, <laughs> because I was very, very behind. But now I'm totally caught up. Um, and just like two days ago, I was listening to um, our Fair Maid of the West episode, which is the one where we're like, oh, hey, it's a pandemic. Yep. Um, and it felt odd to listen to that from i don't know six seven weeks ago six yeah six weeks ago yeah um so i thought maybe we should uh take a moment at the top of this episode and just like have like a little little corona check-in a little covid check-in and, yeah. and see how we're doing and see uh if the doom and gloom that we predicted uh has has come to pass so how you doing obs I'm I'm doing okay, you know. I'm I'm doing as w well as I think I possibly can. Um, I'm still furloughed, but I'm being uh, brought back in, you know, on a project by project basis um, mm -hmm. for a little bit of work with the company here and there. So Good. I'm doing, uh, you know, a master class, and I'm uh, helping out with one other project right now. So I'm getting a little, a few hours, um, but still still basically furloughed which sucks because i 
want to be working. Like spring is a busy time for us and I enjoy what I do and I'd rather be working. But um, I've been devoting a lot of my time to being outside and yeah. And to starting my Rona victory garden. (laughs) (laughs) Amazing. Uh, Yeah. So which I shouldn't take all of the credit for that because my friend Stephanie has been here like two or three times a week all the goddamn time to help me and I couldn't get it done without her so and I promised her like a heap of vegetables at the end of the like she gets to partake in the harvest so I I want to shout out to Stephanie for for helping me out yeah um so she's sort of I haven't seen her in months (laughs) yeah I miss seeing everyone is what I miss I just I, I I don't even really count myself as like a touchy feely person, but I cannot wait to just get my hands on everybody and like mm-hmm. wrap my arms around everybody because I'm mm-hmm. that's what I'm struggling with right now is is, you know, I live alone. So and I've right. got five animals and a friend who drops in on me once in a while. And I and I see people when I dare to step outside, but only from very far away and. Some of those people I don't like very much, and <laughs> like <laughs> the shade. I know. I know. <laughs> uh, my neighbors are bonkers. That's all I'm going to say about that. So I mean, you know, I'm I'm surviving. I'm staying healthy. I'm baking a lot. I'm going to have to teach myself how to make bagels because I can't get them at any store anywhere, and that's mm-hmm. terrible for me because mm-hmm. I love bagels. But like, these are small problems. So how about you? Yeah, I'm kind of crushing it. Uh, you know, being a student right now comes with um, being a, a graduate student. Being a graduate student in the Department of English in the Strode program at the University of Alabama uh, comes with some privilege right now. And that is um, that I... And I have secure income. I have health insurance. Um, there are no demands on my time other than like, I need to, you know, write my dissertation or whatever. It's fine. Right. Uh, so I'm, I'm kind of like, I'm fine. You know, I also live alone. I'm lonely. I miss my friends. Um, I miss my one friend, my one friend in Tuscaloosa. I miss you. I miss you, Courtney. <laughs> um, and I miss all of my faraway friends and I miss yoga and I miss rock climbing Um, but other than that, you know, I, I've settled into a really nice routine. Um, I have the things that I need generally. I have to, you know, I have to work my nerve up to go to the grocery store in the next couple of days. I've got like half a cup of milk left and that's it in my fridge. Um, so I, I need to get out and do that, but I'm okay. Uh, the, the sort of, terror that I felt back in March has not really materialized for me, which has been nice. Um, Obviously, the world is still a terrifying place. And I'm really worried for my future. And I'm worried for um, the the present for many of my friends and family. Yeah. Um, But I thank God do not have to worry about having a roof over my head or paying my rent or being able to feed myself. Um, that I am secure for the time being. The, the end of that is in sight. I've got, um, less than a year now until that money runs out, which is a scary place to be. Uh, but 
I don't know. We'll see what happens, I guess. I mean, a lot can happen between then and now. That's what we're learning. So, yeah. 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 No, same here. I mean, I am right now pretty secure. Like I'm, I'm okay, you know, and I feel very lucky that I'm doing okay. And I feel lucky that I live in a community where even though some of these weirdos around here don't think social distancing is an issue stanton is a very mixed bag politically and ideologically uh it's like it's like the little blueberry in the red appalachian soup but at the same time there are some like you know deep deep trumpsters in this town who make life a little harder for everybody of the confederacy so tis yeah um still (laughs) yes and this is still virginia and uh, the war's not over it's god no no it's not for some people it never will be but um so so like it's a mixed bag around here Mm -hmm. like in my community but i think overall people are coping and cooperating and really trying hard to save the things that we love in this town including my company the american shakespeare center and a ton of local businesses Mm -hmm. um keeping each other afloat and holding each Mm -hmm. other up and that's been really encouraging yes i think yeah echoing what you said the um the worst has not yet come to pass the worst of what Mm -hmm. i feared Mm-hmm. has not happened knock on wood yeah and t- 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 whatever <laughs> superstitious some. thing i need to do to like yeah <clears throat> um yeah and i've just been trying to check in with my far away friends and family mm-hmm. so like that's been a a good thing i don't know a, a lot of positive things have have come out of this and i feel weird about that i, I don't know how yeah. to feel about that i'm like people are dying by the thousands daily um yeah I, I don't I don't know how to balance those things. <laughs> well, I mean, that's that's the way the world works, right? Is that yeah. good and bad come together. Um, yeah. And especially in crisis, it brings out a lot of good, but it also brings out a lot of bad. Yeah. Um, I was reading something on the Internet. Someone was saying, you know, it, I think we're learning that in, in times of crisis, those of us who are already predisposed to kindness and giving and charity are more that. But those of us who are predisposed to anxiety and fear and walls and self-righteousness and whatever are, are going to double down on those things. Um, and so mm. it, it really does bring out the best and the worst. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think that's true. But... Yeah, there there is there's still a lot of good mm-hmm. going around. Yeah. All right. So <laughs> is that, are those things we need to say about, about I COVID? guess. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Good. We've done our bit for posterity. All right. <laughs> um, <laughs> should we like time capsule record keeping? Yeah. Should we meet for, meet the yep. contemporary? Yeah. Yeah. Anonymous. This is your anonymous life. Here we go. Yeah. Uh, so anonymous, we have said before, was anonymously born to anonymous parents in an anonymous town at some point. Anonymous is the most prolific and well-known playwright of the early modern period and responsible for writing well over 100 plays. Phew! Mm. Anonymous was a master of genre adapting easily to any and all of them. 
Equally at home writing comedy and tragedy and city comedy and tragic comedy and history plays, they delivered hit after hit like Musidorus. And Fair M, the Miller's daughter. And a knack to know a knave. And crack me this nut. And a warning for fair women. And look about you. And the wisdom of Dr. Dodipole. I love that name. And the Merry Devil of Edmonton. And a Yorkshire tragedy. And the Welsh Traveler. Among many, many others. The end. Pastoral, historical, tragical, comical, historical pastoral. Although I'm actually about to read Yorkshire Tragedy for the first time, and Uh it turns out uh, it's been claimed for Middleton. Oh, really? Well, Gary Taylor included it in his complete Middleton, Mm -hmm. but he also included Measure for Measure and Macbeth and like a whole bunch of other shit. So, mm. okay, grain of salt. Uh, It's also super fucking short, P.S. It's eight pages. Yorkshire Tragedy, I feel like that was one I also was assigned in Roz's class. That sounds very familiar to me. Yeah. Yeah. I don't remember a damn thing about it, except that it took place in Yorkshire. (laughs) And it's a tragedy. Yorkshire. Yes. Um, That's kind of all I remember. I love that. Yeah. Um, Okay. okay. So we're still talking about climate and calamities, ostensibly. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And before we jump into a summary of that, we're going to give you our five word unhelpful titles. Mine is, it's six words technically, but they're short words. So neither of these words is chlamydia. (laughs) Oh my God. Both true and very unhelpful for this play. (laughs) Oh my God. I I don't know whether to be furious or just Climate and calamities and chlamydia. It sounds like a STD. It really does. It really does. It really, really does. You You know I'm right. Where is the lie? Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so mine is also six words, so at least we're both on theme today, um, and that is Neronis doesn't know how to read. Spoilers! will become clear <laughs> when we get to the part where she doesn't know how to read. Awesome. Uh, great, and now it's time for the Dramatis Personae, but only the really important ones. All right, so we're going to start out with Clymen, who is the son of the King of Denmark and Knight of the Golden Shield. Yes. We also have the other title character, Calamities, son to the king of Swabia and knight of the White Shield. Then there's Juliana, who is Clyman's sister and princess of Denmark. And Brian Sansfoy, which literally means Brian without honor. He's a cowardly sorcerer. Uh, we also have Subtle Shift the Vice, who is also uh, variously referred to in the play as Knowledge. Oh, okay. We have, you know him. Alexander the Great. Whoa. I hear he's great. Pew, 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 pew. Yeah, he's he's real great. That Alexander. Except in this play, he fucking sucks. It's fine. Great. Um, <laughs> I, have, I have some baggage about Alexander the Great mm-hmm. in this play. Don't we all? Uh, mm-hmm. uh, we ha- next have Neronis, who is princess of the Isle of Strange Marshes. Her dad, the king of the Isle of Strange Marshes, is also a character. Thrasilus, the king of Norway. Great. Rumor who is allegorical and not Demi Moore and Bruce Willis's daughter. Corin, who is a shepherd in the Forest of Strange Marvels. Excellent. We have Mustantius, brother-in-law to the king of the Isle of Strange Marshes. And Neronis's mom, who is the queen of the Isle of Strange Marshes. Ah, and we have Providence, another allegorical character. What a lot for, of allegory. For Providence. Yeah. Shift is also kind of allegorical because mm-hmm. he also gets called knowledge. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Yeah. This, so, this place, I love it. So, Jess, why should this play be so goddamn popular? Okay. I mean, for every reason. But this play is written in rhyming 14ers. And for those of you who don't know what that means, like iambic pentameter is 10 syllables. So this is 14 syllables and they rhyme. It's rhyming couplets the whole way down and it's a fucking amazing. And it's also super alliterative and it's fucking amazing. It's amazingly amazing. Um, it also has early modern facial blindness, which you know, I love. It's got shipwrecks, which you know, I love. It's got true love triumphant, which like, you know, everybody loves. And it's got a giant fucking snake. Like what else do you need? Nothing. Literally yeah. nothing. If you don't want to read this play, I can't help you. <laughs> read it. Oh, see yeah, it. You are, someone you produce are, this. Right? Like, what I wouldn't give for someone, some theater company, to just lean in and just do it and just have fun. Yeah. Ugh. Yeah. Anyway. You heard it here first, folks. Somebody needs to do it. All right. It is, uh, it's summary time. Great. Uh, we will now summarize the history of the two valiant knights, Sir Clyman, Knight of the Golden Shield, son to the King of Denmark, and Calamity's the White Knight, son to the King of Swabia, for you in a segment that this week we're calling A Summary of the History of the Two Valiant Knights, Sir Clyman, Knight of the Golden Shield, son to the King of Denmark, and Calamity's the White Knight, son to the King of Swabia. <laughs> Yay. Can we also take a minute to appreciate that I did not stumble through that at all? I'm so proud of you. I nailed it. I'm so proud of you. Amazing. (sighs) Okay. Because it's the afternoon. Uh Uh-huh. Yes. And I'm feeling a little silly. (laughs) And because this is like my favorite play ever, um, I'm just going to like waltz my way through this i don't care about making it five minutes like this play is the i it's not going to be long anyway because it's not a long play but like i'm going to take my time okay and we haven't divided it into acts right we should note that because because this play um is not in fact divided into acts it is only in scenes i divided it in in my summary into three general beginning middle end yeah 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 you know, like, uh, like stories generally have, I hear. Um, and that's what I've done. It's something like 19 scenes, question mark. 19 scenes. Do you happen to know how many lines or 2,200, 2,200. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's not, it's not very long at all. Um, okay. So, uh, in the first bit at the beginning, we have calamities who has been shipwrecked, uh, in Denmark. He is in love with Juliana. In order to win her hand, he has to travel to the forest of strange marvels and slay a giant serpent. But first, he makes a stop at home in Swabia to get knighted. Clyman takes on subtle shift the vice as his servant, uh, and together they conspire to steal Clamides's knighthood from him. At the moment that Calamities' father is about to lay the mace on his head and pronounce him a knight, Clyman pushes Calamities out of the way and steals the knighthood for himself. It's amazing. Uh, Calamities' dad is like, oh, well, too bad. Guess you can't be a knight since I definitely can't just knight you anyway because I can only give out one knighthood a day or some shit. IDK, LOL. Uh, but then dad <laughs> knights him anyway, so, like, it's fine. Clyman gets away, but they catch Shift, and Shift shifts his loyalty to Calamities. Mm, hmm. I see what you did 
there. <laughs> Wonder why he's called Shift. Mm. So Calamities and Shift catch up to Clyman and confront him. Clyman and Calamities agree to meet at the court of Alexander the Great in 10 days time and fight. But they both have other projects to be getting on with right now. So that's why they wait 10 days. Sure. Um, in the Forest of Strange Marvels, Brian Sands Foy, the sorcerer, is boasting of his greatness, but he's actually a coward because he uses magic rather than might to subdue all the knights that come his way. He also tells the audience that he is in love with Juliana and is just waiting for someone to come kill the serpent so he can take credit for it and have Juliana all to himself. Shift comes in and tells Brian that Calamities has slain the serpent. Brian offers Shift a token that will protect him from enchantments if Shift will lead Brian to Calamities and the Serpent. Calamities, with the serpent's head on his sword, sits down under a tree to rest. Brian enters and puts him in an enchanted sleep that will knock him out for ten days and then takes his armor and his shield and the serpent head. In the middle-ish bit, elsewhere, Clyman has been shipwrecked on the Isle of Strange Marshes and gives himself up for dead. He's rescued by Princess Neronis, who nurses him back to health. Aww. Back in the Forest of Strange Marvels, the ten days of enchanted sleep have passed, so Brian decides he should probably leave before Calamities wakes up. And he takes Calamities' armor and shield and the serpent head and sets off for Denmark and Juliana. Shift helps Calamities escape Brian's prison, and they also free a bunch of other knights that have been held captive. Back in the Isle of Strange Marshes, Clyman is healthy again and has to leave, even though he's definitely not going to make his date to fight Calamities at Alexander the Great's court. He and Neronis obviously have fallen in love during this time and compare themselves to ships and plants, and then Clyman leaves. Oh, how romantic. <laughs> Later, he meets one of the knights that Calamities freed and learns that Calamities won't be able to keep their fight date either. The allegorical figure of rumor enters to tell Clyman that Thracellus, the king of Norway, has kidnapped Neronis, and then her dad died of grief. Oh, no. And then her uncle, Mustantius, stole the crown instead of letting Neronis's pregnant mom rule. What a dick. Mm. Back in the Forest of Strange Marvels, Neronis has escaped Thracellus and disguised herself as a boy. She meets Corin, a shepherd recently transferred from Arden, I'm kidding, um, who, takes her, <laughs> who takes her in as a servant. Elsewhere in the forest, Thracellus meets with Clyman. They fight and Clyman kills him, but also he is severely wounded. He's rescued by Corin, who binds up his wounds and helps him bury Thracellus. Clyman asks Corin if he's seen a woman matching Neronis' description, but of course Corin hasn't because Neronis is dressed as a boy. Clyman marks Thracellus' grave with his own golden shield and a sign that says, here lies Thracellus or whatever, and he heads off. Okay, to bring it home. Oh boy. <clears throat> Back at the Isle of Strange Marshes, Shift tells us that Neronis's mom appealed to Alexander the Great to intercede with her brother-in-law Mustantius and let her rule. Alexander decided that there should be a contest to decide who gets to rule since Neronis is missing, and Calamities is going to fight on the side of Mustantius, but no one has yet shown up to be a champion for the queen. Neronis, striking out on her own again, happens across Thrasyllus's grave, sees Clyman's shield, and assumes that Clyman is dead. She prepares to commit suicide when Providence literally descends from above and is like, bitch, read the GD sign. And Neronis stops being a dummy because she reads the GD sign and is like, oh, this is not my boyfriend. Okay, cool. This is why we read instructions, children. 
Fucking just read. Uh, <laughs> Clyman sets off to the Isle of Strange Marshes to be a champion for Neronis's mom, but he disguises himself first for reasons. Okay. Um, Neronis, who is still dressed like a boy, runs into Clyman and he agrees to take her on as his page. Neither recognizes the other because of course they don't, because early modern facial blindness is a real disease. And if you or someone you love has been a victim of early modern facial blindness, you may be entitled to compensation. <laughs> Back in Denmark, remember Denmark? Brian, remember Brian, has turned up with the serpent's head. You remember the serpent's head? I do, yeah. Uh, To claim Juliana for his bride. Do you remember Juliana? Yes. Great. He is still disguised as Calamities. This is important. But back at the Isle of Strange Marshes, Alexander the Great is getting ready to judge the tournament between the Queen and Mustanches. When Clyman arrives to fight for the queen, Calamities recognizes him and they start to argue over their own disagreements because early modern facial blindness only works some of the time. And if you're a knight who's waiting to fight another knight, like maybe it doesn't work as like whatever. Okay, so it turns out that Alexander the Great knows Clyman from before and they're bros. Hmm. And then the queen recognizes that he is the person that Neronis loved. And then it's revealed that Clyman is Juliana's brother So he and Calamities are like, chill now. And everyone basically sets aside their differences and become friends. And Alexander tells them that Mustanches can rule until the queen gives birth. And then the baby gets to be in charge. And Clyman and Calamities and Neronis, who is still in disguise, all leave for Denmark. Mm -hmm, Because God forbid the queen actually be allowed to rule. Right? And also like annoying. Whatever. Okay. Well, let's bring it home. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So they all go back to Denmark, right? And they get there and Calamities is all like, Jules, hey, I came back for you, but a magician stole the serpent's head for me. Uh, And she's like, WTF, who are you? Calamities is already here. And then Brian comes out and it's basically like a Scooby-Doo standoff with everybody going like, who, who, who's the real Calamities? Um, But then Calamities (laughs) challenges Brian to a fight and Brian backs down immediately and reveals himself because he's a coward okay um meanwhile nerona speaks to calamities mom privately and she takes Neronis off to put on some girl clothes and then comes back and reveals herself to climbing and everyone lives happily ever after the end oh my goodness i love this play wow i love this play <laughs> also so the number silly. of times that i have immediately finished a summary and just shouted i love this play into the mic is like a hundred percent anyway um should we um, read a little yeah bit of this yeah bitch? so now it's time for a taste of text in which we give you a small but crucial scene or portion of a scene from the play to give you an idea of what the writing really sounds like a little bit of its flavor um so we're gonna look at the bit where providence stops neronis <laughs> from killing herself and is like bitch read the sign that's me paraphrasing, hopefully. I hope Anonymous didn't actually write that. Actually, I secretly I mean, hope they did write that. Never mind. It's okay, like, so it's pretty fucking close. <laughs> okay, so um I'm looking at a digital doc, so help me out here. Yeah, it's um Ooh. it's the end of scene thirteen? No. Scene eighteen. Sorry. Roman numerals okay. are hard. Ooh, okay, gotcha. Oh yes, yeah. it's very short. These are weird short little scenes. Yeah. Aren't they? Some of them. Yeah. Yeah, I actually I'm going to talk about this right now and then we can read. So this play is it's a weird link between 
what we think of when we think of early modern drama and like the morality plays of the 1550s ish right it's got those allegorical figures it's got mm-hmm. sh- subtle shift who's the vice um and i think he's explicitly called the vice in the in the dp in the quarto but it's mm-hmm. also really monologue like yeah really mon- like it's 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 a lot of it's a lot of soliloquies and then we'll have like really short interpersonal scenes and then we'll get like another sort of like information data dump from rumor or subtle shift or whoever who is like basically just filling us in on all the action that's taken place off stage um and it's it's super interesting to sort of see the transition between the morality plays and um, the early London stage mm-hmm. take place in this play. So is this an early play then in the early modern period? Is that what yes. scholars think that, yep. that it's yep. more on 15, the early side? 1580. Okay. Yeah. So real Ish. early. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. In fact, most, um, most collections, most, most, when we categorize the early modern dramatic period, we usually say 1580 to 1642. So this is right at the very fucking beginning. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and I'll maybe talk a little bit more about that after this, but let's read. Um, yes. So will you read Providence? Would love to. I thought you might. Um, and we'll, we'll just, we'll go from um, right before she descends to, uh, I guess the end of that scene. Okay, so are you going to do like a couple of Neronis lines bef- yeah, before yeah, Providence's I'll, entrance? Yeah. Okay, great. I'll, I'll cue you in. Excellent. Okay. Um, all right, so Neronis has seen, she's seen uh, the grave and she thinks that it is uh, climbing and she's like, no, nah, I'm going to kill myself. <clears throat> well, now you heavens receive my ghost, my corpse I leave behind to be enclosed with his in earth by those that it shall it find. Stay, stay thy stroke, thou woeful dame, what wilt thou thus despair? Behold, to let this willful fact I, Providence, prepare. To thee, from feet of mighty Jove, look hereupon again. Read, that if case thou canst it read, and see if he be slain, whom thou dost love. Ah, heavens above! A laud and praise and honor due to you, I here do render that would vouchsafe your handmaid here in woeful state to tender. But by this, these same verses do I find my faithful knight doth live, whose hand unto my deadly foe the mortal stroke did give, whose cursed carcass low it is which here on ground doth lie. Ah, honor due for this I yield to mighty Jove on high. Well, let desperation die in thee, I may not here remain, but be assured that thou shalt ere long thy night attain. And for their providence divine, the gods above I'll praise, and show their works so wonderful unto their laud always. Well, sith that the gods by providence hath signed unto me such comfort sweet in my distress, my night again to see, farewell all feeding shepherds' flocks, unseemly for my state. To seek my love I will set forth in hope of friendly fate. But first to shepherds' house will I, my pages tire to take, and afterwards depart from thence my journey for to make. I love those rhyming 14ers. They just, they fucking, you know how people are always, they always say like, oh, Marlowe's mighty line, da 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 the heartbeat, yeah. the iambic pentameter. But in 14ers, you fucking hear it. It's like a train driving you. 
Mm-hmm. Like you just get swept up and you go. Yes. And yes. I love it. I love it. Well, I'm I'm hoping those at home heard that. I think you can. I think it's pretty obvious the <laughs> yes. style of this particular play and kind of how it sets itself apart from yeah. other things that we've read. Um, yeah. yeah. So uh, talk to us, Jess. Tell me all of your feelings. Yeah, I'm okay. an empty vessel um, waiting to receive all of these feelings about this play. Yeah. So Let's do uh, it. like I said, um, the play is early. We think we think. Uh, it was written about 1580. It was not printed until 1599. Wow. So that's, yeah, it's a big gap. But even 1599, were it written then, it would mark it as a, a pretty early play, right? Um, but we do think that it was written much closer to 1580. We also don't know who wrote it, uh, as, as we said earlier, uh, anonymous. Um, also, though, maybe it was George Peel. Uh, his name has been bandied about over the years. I, it's it's never received a lot of traction. Um, there's also no critical edition of this play, which is a damn shame and is low-key my life's ambition to do one. But uh, if you need a modern transcription of this, uh, there are two dissertation project editions out there. One of them is pretty good. Uh, it was done by a, a woman whose name is Betsy Littleton. Um, in the 60s or 70s, question mark. Uh, and it's got some really good uh, introductory materials. She did a, a good job, um, but it's a dissertation project. It's not, you know, critical edition. Right. Um, or it's not a traditional critical edition, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you, if you have access to a library with interlibrary loan, you can probably get your hands on it. Um, anyway, it's amazing. It's amazing. This play is amazing. I love this play. Um, Swabia is in Germany. That's... That's a, a, it's a the Germany of yore. Yes, right? yeah, it's yeah. um, it's a historic region in present day Germany. It's where Stuttgart is. Right. So you've never heard of this play. No one's ever heard of this play. This play does mm-hmm. not. It's got no critical history. No one's done it in four hundred years, um, except us. Yeah. Right. We a in, student production. Yeah. In our yeah. second year? Question yep. mark mm-hmm. in grad school. We we mounted a, a mm-hmm. sweet little production of this that was. Mm-hmm. Just a whale of a time. It It was, was, yeah. I mean, the place, (laughs) it's just, it's it's silly. It's ridiculous and it's so fun. Um, And we we had a good time doing it. But we're not a professional. Right. So we don't count. A very, very Um, teeny tiny percentage of the whole world saw it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So it doesn't really have a critical tradition. Mm -hmm. Um, Yet. However, if you are doing research on early modern travel this play comes up a lot a lot a lot a lot um critics do love to talk about it when they talk about travel in early modern plays because there's so much travel in this play Mm -hmm. they are always going from one place to the other place and back and forth and back and forth in swabia and denmark and the isle of strange marshes and the forest of strange marvels and wherever else we're going is all over the place (laughs) norway um I guess we don't actually go to Norway. Uh, anyway, so it comes up a lot. And if you will remember, you, Aubrey, and also any listeners who've been around this long, in our Pericles episode, I read to you part of a paper that I had written on shipwrecks um, in early modern drama and Pericles. Um, the other half of that paper was about climbing calamities. <laughs> or as we in the biz call it, 
Cly Clam. Yes. So I thought perhaps I might read to you part of that now. Great. Um, yeah. So just to set it up, the paper was, I don't fucking know, arguing about <laughs> shipwrecks. It was yeah, about shipwrecks. shipwrecks. Right? It was about shipwrecks. Yeah. Uh, I was sort of arguing that like shipwrecks function as a method of rebirth. I'm not sure. Um, I wrote it a long time ago. It, I don't think it was very good, but I wanted to write about Cly Clam because I love it so much. Uh, so here we go. Um, here we go. Okay. Great. From his first appearance in the play, Clyman, a king's son, displays traits unbecoming to his status and station. He is cocksure, crafty, self-important, and focused only on increasing his reputation as the greatest knight. In the play's second scene, Clyman delivers a soliloquy in which he describes his passion for martial play and his distaste for cowardice. Clyman's purpose is to do great feats of strength and win battles, all without giving up his true name unless he is bested in combat by another knight, which is... Question mark, an important point that we didn't hit in the summary is that he refuses to give up his name to anyone. And it kind of spends the whole name being like, nah, you can't, you don't get to know my name. Maha, I'm a mystery man. It's fucking wild. Anyway, so what he says is requesting for to know my name, the witch shall not be shown to any knight unless by force he make it known. For so I vowed to Denmark king, my father's grace, when I first got his leave that I abroad, my force and strength might try. Like he made some fucking random. He was like, hey, dad, you know what I'm going to do is I'm not going to tell anyone my name unless they beat it out of me. Like what? Like what? <laughs> Anyway, his interruption of Clamides' knighthood ceremony and theft of the title are illustrative of Clyman's lack of consideration for others and makes him a prime candidate for the rebirthing ceremony provided by the shipwreck. Uh, like the play's first shipwreck, the audience hears about the second only after it has happened. The second shipwreck is not staged, but the aftermath is signaled by, quote, a noise as though they were mariners. Uh, and then a storm-tossed Clyman enters, supported by a bosun. The storm has been sufficiently taxing for Clyman to more or less give up the ghost, as it were, and the mariners leave him on the shore to bemoan his fortune and curse his chance. Here, on the shores of the Isle of Strange Marshes, fresh from the storm-tossed sea, Clyman has emerged from the cleansing waters of the shipwreck and is reborn afresh. Having been given the opportunity to evaluate his choices and having been weakened by his ordeal at sea, Clyman must fight to regain and redeem his life. His salvation here gives the audience the chance to watch him turn to watch him turn loss to profit in real-ish time. Bereft and ill, he is discovered by Neronis, princess of the Isle of Strange Marshes, who conducts him to the castle to nurse him back to health. Neronis serves as the touchstone for Clyman's redemption after being new baptized by the waves. He emerges from the castle two scenes later, a changed man, praising Neronis for her care of him. Clyman then turns his loss of ship, health, and goods to profit. He has regained his health, cleansed his character, and found a bride. The two exchange vows of love, during which Neronis fittingly refers to Clyman as a ship and herself as a shipwreck and deliverance. Here's part of this wackadoo speech. A ship that storms had tossed long amidst the mounting waves, where harbor none was to be had, fell fortune so depraves. Though ill success that, that ship of hope that anchors hold doth fail, yet at the last she's driven to land when broken mast and sail, with broken mast and sail, 
and through the force of furious wind and billows bouncing blows, she is a simple shipwreck made in every point, God knows. Now this same ship, by chance being found, the finders take such pain that fit to sail upon the seas they rig her up again. And where she was, through storms sore shaked, they make her whole and sound. Now answer me directly here upon this my propound. If this same ship, thus rent and torn, being brought in former rate, should not supply the finders true to profit his estate, ellipsis, I don't know why I added that quote there, the shipwreck that brought Clyman to the Isle of Strange Marshes allowed Clyman to examine his character, and while he still plans to leave Neronis to keep his word to duel with calamities, he has now found a purpose for himself that is more important than martial prowess and military glory. Clyman answers Neronis's speech with shipping metaphors of his own, casting himself as a ship that has found its captain and its purpose. Aubrey, will you read this? Just get another voice in here. Yes. This ship thus found, I put the case, it hath an owner now, which owner shall sufficiently content the finder's charge, and have again to serve his use, his ship, his boat, or barge. The ship then cannot serve the turn of finders, this is plain, if case the owner do content, or pay him for his pain. But otherwise, if none lay claim, nor seem that ship to stay, then is it requisite, aha, then is it requisite, oh, I like the way that feels, when I say it, then is it requisite it should the finder's pains repay, ellipsis, that you would me accept to be that ship, O lady fair, and you the finder, then it should be needless for to move, if I the ship of duty ought to serve at your behoove. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Having found Neronis and pledged his love and loyalty to her, Clyman sets off for Alexander the Great's court. He promises to return after he settles his accounts with Calamities, and after she exits, Clyman calls on the gods to thank them for bringing him to Neronis, to employ them to keep her safe in his absence, and to make his journey swift and safe. Clyman's shipwreck on the Isle of Strange Marches, which brought him to Neronis, fundamentally alters his character. By the time all the characters converge to sort out the questions of identity and honor, Clyman's driving focus is no longer acts of bravery and heroic feats designed to increase his reputation. Put another way, Clyman is no longer focused on personal interests, but those of the greater good. He aligns himself with the downtrodden and puts himself forward as champion for the recently widowed and pregnant queen of the Isle of Strange Marshes, whose regency is being challenged by her husband's brother, Mistanchus, because her unborn, unborn child's gender cannot yet be determined and the other heir, Neronis, has gone missing. Alexander the Great proclaims that both the queen and Mistanchus shall have a champion to fight for their right to rule. We gotta fight for our for right. Your right. To rule. Okay. And the winner will be respected as regent. Thank you. Great. That was fun. Uh, the play paints Mustanchus as the villain in this disagreement, and Clyman's willingness to fight on the side of right rather than on the side of power shows his growth. The expected outcome is for Mustanchus to bully his way to the throne, but Clyman's appearance prevents him from doing so, not because Clyman will gain any personal reward or fame from intervening, but because he sees it as the right thing to do. Between the play's two shipwrecks, Clyman is clearly the more dynamic one. Because it takes place midway through the play rather than at the beginning, the audience has the chance to see Clyman's character before and after the wreck and to track the way his crisis at sea changes him. 
Calamities, by comparison, does not undergo any significant rebirth during the play's action as a result of his shipwreck. Though we cannot know the intent of his original voyage, the one that was blown off course and landed in Denmark at the play's outset, we can surmise that he was a knight seeking employment in protecting the downtrodden, rescuing the captive, and enforcing peace. His quest to slay the serpent and win Juliana's hand is born from a coincidence and convenience. It certainly would not have happened without the shipwreck bringing him to her court in the first place. Clam and Calamities, which had very likely been performed around the time of the Spanish Armada and around the time of the foundation of the East India Company, offers its audiences some important coping mechanisms for dealing with anxieties about maritime travel. First, of course, is that no one dies in the play's shipwrecks. Secondly, the shipwrecks turn out to be good fortune for both characters. Calamity's shipwreck brings him to Juliana, while Clymon's shipwreck allows him personal growth as well as bringing him to Neronis. Finally, neither shipwreck incurs any economic cost as a result of the unscheduled docking, unlike the shipwrecks in The Merchant of Venice or Twelfth Night. Both ships put in at shore merely to avoid destruction in the storm, but there's no associated loss of goods or assets. The play then gives its audiences not one but three possible good or safe outcomes of a shipwreck, which might assuage some nervousness about the risks associated with England's rise as a maritime power. Valerie Foreman writes about the economics of loss and travel in her book, Tragicomic Redemptions. <clears throat> Though her forces focus is on tragicomedies and this paper follows romances, Foreman's work lays out two important lines of thinking for the tension between dramatic shipwrecks and real-life maritime travel, whatever the genre. Foreman writes that, quote, new economic practices required the English to reconceptualize loss itself as something productive, and this is a thing that Climate and Calamities undertakes at length. Both Climate and Calamities suffer degrees of loss in relation to their shipwrecks, health, time, company, goods, personnel, but they gain something more as a result, Neronis and Juliana. Additionally, neither shipwreck seems to have any real economic consequence. Though Clyman is abandoned on the shore of the Isle of Strange Marshes, the play gives no indication that the ship that brought him there is in any way damaged or that the crew has suffered any injury or that any goods the ship was carrying have been lost or destroyed. Calamity's shipwreck similarly has no economic cost. His is merely an unscheduled stop due to extreme weather. Foreman's second inquiry into the tension between drama and life is a question. Quote, if loss is to be transformed into profit, where does the added value come from? She makes a case that tradesmen in early modern England were working to reframe loss as a source of profit in the newly emergent maritime economy, but finds no clear answer for how this lost profit model conjures profits out of nothing. For the poets and playwrights, at least, the answer seems straightforward. The profit arrives from the discovery of love or the reunion of lost, lost loved ones. Setting aside that Climate and Calamities also feature shipwrecks with no discernible economic loss and no loss more significant than a temporary displacement of health or time, the boon in both cases is the discovery of love and the marriages with Juliana and Neronis. Aww. Oh, that was a lot. That Thanks was. Thanks for humoring that. I forgot how long that section is. It's basically like half a paper. Woof. Yeah. But also, thanks for sharing that. Mm -hmm. um, I kind of like how from, I mean, not to like pat us on the back, but I'm gonna. <laughs> um, I like how from time to time we share snippets of like just full on like academic writing. Yeah. Um, or really any kinds of writing. Um, yeah. But mostly academic writing. And I like that. I like that about yeah. us. I like it how it's part of our ethos. <laughs> just, a, just a shout out again that this matches very well with our Pericles 101 episode. It sure If you want to go back. And hear the other half of this paper and also question mark the blue angels flying overhead while we were recording. I think that's the episode. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. the one. 
why don't you tell me a little bit about challenges yeah. that you see in doing yeah. this play? So, so the biggest challenge, and you heard it in our taste of text, is is the verse. I think for this is going to be the bane of any playing company's existence because, and I, I say this as someone who has gone through years of actor training. Um, because like the the focus right now in in acting right in contemporary American stage acting is is naturalism right you want to try uh, even with classical works uh, you want to try to make them sound natural and relatable and now you know uh, and that is just not possible you can't with this do it play it is not no you cannot be and you heard it like you heard me like anybody listening to our taste of text like you heard me struggling with it right with that rhythm and i i was actively fighting with my instinct to make it sound natural um mm-hmm. and to give it a natural cadence and then you know the the verse just kind of carries you away so you're gonna need to do your fucking table work with a company who's about to do this um, and wrap your brains and your mouths, hey uh, <laughs> around the verse. Um, it is a real doozy. I don't know why it was written this way, but it's going to be really hard. And it's not going to f- ever feel natural. And you just need to get over that. That said, I think there are some fun, playable options for why a particular character might be rhyming so much that is interesting to explore. Um we we do this on a smaller scale when Shakespeare characters rhyme, you know, uh, and and you know maybe making it seem like a choice that a character is making to keep rhyming because they like words so much or whatever. I'm not sure you can sustain that throughout the entire play, but it's fun to figure out those those options uh, and and just like uh, take pity on your actors. They're gonna want a reason for all that rhyming, and sometimes you just can't give it to them, and that's just how life is. <laughs> or as my mom used to say, because the world is round. Okay. That's why. That's why. Um, Little did I know she was quoting the Beatles. I didn't find that out until like 30 years later. Anyway, um, so this play is wonderfully silly in case you didn't gather that by our summary. So like you're going to have to lean into the silly and the fantasy as much as you possibly can. Um, The names suggest it, you know, the names of places and the names of people and it like there's a mysterious, a strange forest and a strange island. And like, <laughs> like what the fuck, what the fuck is that? So it's, it's silly. This reads to me more like, more like a British panto, a Christmas mm-hmm. panto, um, than a serious thing. You know, it feels very much like a panto or like perversely, I'd really like to see this as a plot line for medieval times. <laughs> like, <laughs> Like, there's princesses and jousting and, like, competing knights. Like, this is tailor-made for the folks at the Medieval Times franchise. Uh, And I'd love to see it. I'd love to be feasting on a turkey leg and watching this (laughs) at Medieval Times. Um, Amazing. (laughs) uh, Production-wise, you get to create a serpent. Yay. Um, You get to figure out what the hell strange forest and strange isle means to you. Uh, It's all totally open to interpretation, so that's really fun. Also think about not only how this play works in rep with our own podcast episodes, um, like, you know, Pericles, like, listen, I love the idea of podcast episodes in rep. That's really fun. But anyway, that's beside the point. But think about how this play might pair with a bunch of other plays like it's it's got 
aspects of so many things. I think just because you said, you know, it straddles that world mm-hmm. of like the morality plays, it covers a lot of things. Think about how it might pair in rep with As You Like It and then continuing the casting of Corin, just mm-hmm. saying, or mm-hmm. any other green world play or even, you know, with the knights and their and their bromantic bronomies I don't know it might work well with two noble kinsmen uh it might work well with really any play with like Arthurian illusions um Mm -hmm. or plot lines like the it I think it pairs well it's like uh you know like in blood types there's like the universal donor (laughs) I think this play is like the universal pairer or something it feels that way to me I don't know what I'm really trying to say there but like I think it pairs with a lot of plays uh or it could so that's kind of what I got. That's what I got. I'm into it. Fun play. Let's do it. Fucking yeah. I want to see someone do it. I want to see a yeah. fully realized. I want the fucking national theater to do this. Can you oh, imagine man. the resources that the <sighs> national could throw at this? Their production values would be insane. It would be. It'd be so good. Yeah. And then we get to watch it on NT Live. National Theater. Call your girl up. She's got some ideas for you. Definitely. Also, it's short. It's 2,200 lines. It's short. So, like, like you can do it. And it'll be amazing. Yeah. Like, 2,200 lines. That's barely two hours. So, that's... um, Okay. So, we have some corrections. A correction to issue. Take it away, um, Jess. Yeah, okay. So last week I said uh, that the MRI's Midsummer was streaming again, and that is true, uh, but apparently it's only streaming for people in the UK and not for us plebs in the States, and I am crushed. I am Rude. heartbroken. Uh, so, yeah. Rude. You can, oh. you can buy it. Um, you can pay to stream it through the globe, question mark. Must be because okay. it's a globe production uh, for like 10 pounds or dollars or something. Okay. Um, but who wants to pay for theater? Nah. <laughs> um, so. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, so that's a bummer it's, for it's us. It's a bummer. It is a, it is a big old bummer whoosie what's it. <laughs> a bummer whoosie what's it. A yeah. bummer whoosie what's it. All right. So we have a little bit of Shakes Bubble gossip to mm-hmm. to convey. Um, mm-hmm. First is that the Oregon Shakespeare Festival has announced the launch of O. That's just one letter. Oh! O. Oh! It's got an exclamation um, point. You have to show Well, I it. put the exclamation point because I didn't know how to oh. put the little accent over it. Because the oh, logo, yeah, the OSF logo little... has that little accent over the O, yeah. which gives it the same emphasis, roughly, oh! that an exclamation point does. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh! Um, which is their new digital platform that they were they had intended to launch, like, next year, but, mm-hmm. you know, Rona. <laughs> uh, like, uh, so, um, in an attempt to salvage, like everyone, um, salvage some of their 2020 income, they have, mm-hmm. they have launched the digital platform now. Um, right now, it's mostly educational content and some stuff some deep cuts from the archives I think my sister said she got on there like immediately and there are a couple of archived productions streaming on there from like the 60s oh shit um which is yeah like a deep cut um but so they're gonna they're gonna be dusting off some of the archives from the OSF's 85 year history um to be streaming at some point in the future so 
keep an eye on that if you're at all interested in the Oregon Shakespeare Festival. What I said to you was I want that. I fucking want that 2003 Macbeth. Oh my god. You know. I do. I do. The most fantastic production. It was really good, you guys. Yeah. Starring G. Valmont Thomas with that pool of blood in the middle of the stage. Pool of blood. Like, what else do you need? It's. It was so good. I yeah. So yeah. I have no idea other than that, like what their plans are for which archives. I mean, I I have some favorites that I would I love to see that. again. Yeah, like Jess, I want to see some stuff again, but I have no idea what it is. So, but keep an eye on that. They they like many 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 other regional theaters have launched a lot of digital content. So it's out there in the world now. Yep. Um, speaking of digital content, I I hesitated whether to put this on the gossip docket, but since I'm gonna be watching it i figure i should talk about it so um I mean, you can you? yeah you can because it's antony and cleopatra because it's like the play we hate the most um yeah. so wow. you can catch uh nt speaking of national theater you can catch nt lives 2018 antony and cleopatra starring rafe fines and sophie okonedo um until this thursday may 14th so um today through for the next week basically it's on youtube uh, for free and um, Haley Backrack, friend of Jess and of the pod, wrote mm-hmm. a really thought-provoking review of it that is paywall-free for now. So we'll throw the link up. Um, but after I read her review, it actually made me really want to go and watch it, uh, even though I don't particularly care for the play Antony and Cleopatra. Though I'm always kind of, I feel like it's my white whale in that I'm always kind of looking for a production that's going to change my mind. Mm-hmm. And I'll watch anything that Ray Fiennes is in, like literally anything. So I'm going to watch it. NT Live has been doing this for every Thursday for a while now. And I guess Mm -hmm. they will until forever or until they run out of things or until we can all go back into a real theater setting again. So they just keep an eye on NT Live. Um, I I just watched their Frankenstein. Did you see that? I also just watched their Frankenstein. Okay, okay, okay. Did Did you you... see Miller as the creature or Cumberbatch as the creature? I only watched the Miller. Me too. Yeah. Okay. So, okay. (laughs) I followed Molly's advice. Yes. Same, because obviously. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I fucking can't stop thinking about this production. I really? don't know. Like, I, yeah. Like, yeah, I cannot stop. I don't know. Um, as I as I said to Molly, like, the next day, like, I don't know if I liked it, but I can't stop thinking about it. So I must mm. have the spectacle. I mean, oh, my God, the spectacle. Talk about production values. My God, those light bulbs. The fucking spectacle. Yeah, 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 yeah. The, the, the yeah. incredible, incredible. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I appreciated the performance. I appreciated Johnny Lee Miller's creature. He was yeah. so physical. and Yeah, um, very. Yeah, but at the same time, like, that adaptation really leaned into the like misanthropy and and yeah. of course Mary Shelley does in the novel too yeah. like I, I mean I haven't read that novel in years but mm-hmm. but like it really this adaptation really highlighted that and like the mm-hmm. savagery of mankind mm-hmm. so watching that last week for me was like a little too real given the pandemic yeah. and the yeah. like shitstorm that is the world so i'm watching this being like oh my god human beings are really cruel and yeah. they've taught this monster how to be a monster and ugh. so i did not like i don't think i would say that i enjoyed that production sure. i i was blown away 
by some yeah. performances because yeah. my God, that he must have had to drink like a gallon of Gatorade by the time he was, he was so done with sweaty. that. Right? Yeah. I was like, it's been half so an hour physical. and you're fucking drenched, man. Yeah. He spends for those of you who didn't get to see it, because it they've stopped airing it as of today, yeah. May 7. The opening of the play is like 10 minutes of the monster mm-hmm. being birthed and like doing mm-hmm. all the things that babies do, like learning how to move his body. Mm-hmm and and talk and stuff and it's just it's silent mostly except for like grunting like a baby it's wild um yeah and him learning how to walk and shit uh and it's it's incredible that someone one performer let alone two of them can Mm -hmm. make that visually interesting and keep Mm -hmm. you engaged so like wow it's a stunning feat of physicality it is it fucking is my god My God. Yeah. So that was very impressive. Um, So, yeah. Way to go, NT Live, for giving us that gift. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much. I know that Coriolanus with Tom Hiddleston is also on their docket in about a month. So, like, mark your calendars, ladies. Pack a pair of extra underwear. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And then finally, my last piece of gossip is more of a just a shout out. We received a lovely email um, from listener Danielle LaRose from the Tiger's Hearts Collective up in Alberta, Canada, telling us what all they are doing uh, and working on. She says, we're sharing our 50-ish minute version of Troilus and Cressida live online as a part of the Canadian National Arts Center's hashtag Canada Performs initiative on May 25th at 6 p.m. Mountain Standard Time. She gives a special shout out and thank you to the incredible and inimitable Molly Sur- for her insights on Troilus and Cressida, which is super nice. Um, because, of course, she would, because, like, ugh, yeah, like yeah. it just made me, like, pat us on the back. I'm like, of course we brought Molly on because she's the best. Yeah. Good for us. Um, yep. And thank you, Molly. Um, so thanks for reaching out. We are so glad to be a part of your conversation and to generate conversation with you across border lines and <laughs> things. Um, yeah. And again, best of luck to you. And again, that's a... If you're up in Canada, you can probably catch this, a 50-minute Troilus and Cressida, 50-5-0, 50-minute Troilus and Cressida on May 25th at 6 p.m. Mountain Standard Time. So hashtag Canada performs. So thanks for shouting that out. Um, and and good luck to you. What you got, Jess? Uh, well, it's not really Shakespeare related, except that I teach Shakespeare. Um, but I won a fancy teaching award today. Yeah, you did. Not for Congratulations. teaching specifically, just for like teaching in general. Um, yeah, it's like a, it's just, it's just like That's a little, amazing. Yeah, it's cool. It's cool. Um, and I am doing my best not to downplay it. And I'm not very successful at that. I'm like, it's it's fine. It's whatever. It's not a big deal. But it 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 kind of is, is a big deal. Yeah, um, what an honor. That's amazing. Yeah. And it so comes proud with of you. A, a nice a nice cash prize. Amazing. Good for you. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's cool. Um, oh, here's a thing that I wanted to say earlier and didn't, but now am saying because it's popped into my head again. Uh, I put Cly Clam on my syllabus for the fall. Yay. Uh, I don't know that it will stay there, but it's it's certainly acting as a placeholder for right now. Uh, Amazing. The, the two plays I'm going to teach are Cly Clam and Much Ado, <laughs> which are fun. Yeah, fun. Uh, so Much Ado is on my syllabus only because I want to teach that uh, public production. Um, 
so if I can't screen that production for my students, then I'll, I'll take Much Ado mm-hmm. off and I'll probably teach Measure. But if I can, then I'm going to leave Much Ado on and I'm going to teach it and we're going to talk about it and it's going to be amazing. Yeah. So that's 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 it. Uh, yeah. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. We hope you leave the podcast way more informed about climate and calamities <laughs> than when you started. Yeah. Um, so that's it for this season for us. We're we're Whamlet outing hardcore. Um, we are also we want to say that we're going on an extended break now because pandemic and dissertation and jobs and things and like major life transitions. Um, so we don't know when we'll be back, but we'll holla at you. Yeah. And stay so, in touch, folks. There's a yeah. whole three year long, almost a hundred episodes if you ever miss us. So actually I think it might be a hundred if you count our mini sodes and our extras. I was just gonna say, like, fuck, like what is wrong with us? Why didn't we go to a hundred? We can do seven more. It's, no, we're good. We need to take the summer off. Yeah, um, yeah. I really, you know, we need to yeah. give you time to like write that dissertation. Fuck. We got to figure shit out, you know. Yeah. So we're not shutting this door. We're leaving it open a crack. Mm-hmm. But uh, but we're gonna be gone. Gonna be probably minute. not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Probably not coming back on schedule in the fall. Um, yeah. So. Yeah. Be well, everybody. Yeah. Wash your hands. Yep. We'll see you on the other side. Wamlet out. Wamlet out. Bye. If you enjoyed our podcast, please tell your friends, rate us, leave us a review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. For show notes and other fun stuff, visit our website at www.hurlyburlyshakespeareshow.com. Get in touch with us. Tell us what you're working on and thinking about. You can email us at holla at hurlyburlyshakespeareshow.com. You can also find us at hurlyburlyshakes on Instagram. Or hurlyburlyshake on Twitter. Hurley Burley Shakespeare Show is produced and edited by Aubrey Whitlock and Jess Hamlet. All opinions you heard are strictly our own and not affiliated with the institutions we represent. Yeah. I'm getting swole. That's a good thing. Ugh, yeah, check you out. Did you see that? You I see, that? see it. Girl, Look at that see it? definition. Look at that. 100 push-ups a Better day over put here. Put that away. It's making me hot. I don't know. Mm. <laughs> mm. Mm. Yeah. Yeah.